Chapter Seven, Part One of Myths and Legends of All Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Myths and Legends of All Nations by Logan Marshall. Chapter Seven, The Golden Fleece. When Jason, the son of the dethroned king of Iolcos, was a little boy, he was sent away from his parents and placed under the queerest schoolmaster that ever you heard of. This learned person was one of the people, or quadrupeds, called centaurs. He lived in a cavern, and had the body and legs of a white horse, with the head and shoulders of a man. His name was Chiron, and, in spite of his odd appearance, he was a very excellent teacher, and had several scholars, who afterward did him credit by making a great figure in the world. The famous Hercules was one, and so was Achilles, and Philoctetus likewise, and Asclepius, who acquired immense repute as a doctor. The good Chiron taught his pupils how to play upon the harp, and how to cure diseases, and how to use the sword and shield, together with various other branches of education, in which the lads of those days used to be instructed instead of writing and arithmetic. I have sometimes suspected that Master Chiron was not really very different from other people, but that, being a kind-hearted and merry old fellow, he was in the habit of making believe that he was a horse, and scrambling about the schoolroom on all fours, and letting the little boys ride upon his back. And so, when his scholars had grown up and grown old, and were trotting their grandchildren on their knees, they told them about the sports of their school days, and these young folks took the idea that their grandfathers had been taught their letters by a centaur, half man and half horse. Little children, not quite understanding what is said to them, often get such absurd notions into their heads, you know. Be that as it may, it has always been told for effect, and always will be told, as long as the world lasts, that Chiron with the head of a schoolmaster, had the body and legs of a horse. Just imagine the grave old gentleman clattering and stamping into the schoolroom on his four hoofs, perhaps treading on some little fellow's toes, flourishing a switched tail instead of a rod, and now and then trotting out of doors to eat a mouthful of grass. I wonder what the blacksmith charged him for a set of iron shoes. So Jason dwelt in the cave, with this four-footed Chiron, from the time that he was an infant only a few months old, until he had grown to the full height of a man. He became a very good harper, I suppose, and skilful in the use of weapons, and tolerably acquainted with herbs and other doctor's stuff, and above all an admirable horseman, for, in teaching young people to ride, the good Chiron must have been without a rival among schoolmasters. At length, being now a tall and athletic youth, Jason resolved to seek his fortune in the world without asking Chiron's advice or telling him anything about the matter. This was very unwise, to be sure, and I hope none of you, my little hearers, will ever follow Jason's example. But, you are to understand, he had heard how that he himself was a prince royal, and how his father, King Eson, had been deprived of the kingdom of Iolcos by a certain Peleus, who would also have killed Jason, had he not been hidden in the centaur's cave. And, being come to the strength of a man, Jason determined to set all this business to rights, and to punish the wicked Peleus for wronging his dear father, and to cast him down from the throne and seat himself there instead. With this intention he took a spear in each hand, and threw a leopard skin over his shoulders to keep off the rain, and set forth on his travels, with his long yellow ringlets waving in the wind. The part of his dress on which he most prided himself was a pair of sandals that had been his father's, 
They were handsomely embroidered, and were tied upon his feet with strings of gold. But his whole attire was such as people did not very often see, and as he passed along, the women and children ran to the doors and windows, wondering whither this beautiful youth was journeying, with his leopard's skin and his golden-tied sandals, and what heroic deeds he meant to perform, with a spear in his right hand and another in his left. I know not how far Jason had travelled when he came to a turbulent river, which rushed right across his pathway, with specks of white foam along its black eddies, hurrying tumultuously onward, and roaring angrily as it went. Though not a very broad river in the dry seasons of the year, it was now swollen by heavy rains, and by the melting of the snow on the sides of Mount Olympus, and it thundered so loudly, and looked so wild and dangerous, that Jason, bold as he was, thought it prudent to pause upon the brink. The bed of the stream seemed to be strewn with sharp and rugged rocks, some of which thrust themselves above the water. By and by an uprooted tree, with shattered branches, came drifting along the current, and got entangled among the rocks. Now and then a drowned sheep, and once the carcass of a cow floated past. In short, the swollen river had already done a great deal of mischief. It was evidently too deep for Jason to wade, and too boisterous for him to swim. He could see no bridge, and as for a boat, had there been any, the rocks would have broken it to pieces in an instant. "'See the poor lad,' said a cracked voice close to his side. "'He must have had but a poor education, since he does not know how to cross a little stream like this. Or is he afraid of wetting his fine golden-stringed sandals?' It is a pity his four-footed schoolmaster is not here to carry him safely across on his back. Jason looked round greatly surprised, for he did not know that anybody was near. But beside him stood an old woman, with a ragged mantle over her head, leaning on a staff, the top of which was carved into the shape of a cuckoo. She looked very aged and wrinkled and infirm, and yet her eyes, which were as brown as those of an ox, were so extremely large and beautiful that when they were fixed on Jason's eyes he could see nothing else but them. The old woman had a pomegranate in her hand, although the fruit was then quite out of season. "'Whither are you going, Jason?' she now asked. She seemed to know his name, you will observe, and indeed those great brown eyes looked as if they had a knowledge of everything, whether past or to come. While Jason was gazing at her, a peacock strutted forward and took his stand at the old woman's side. "'I am going to Iolcos,' answered the young man, "'to bid the wicked King Peleus come down from my father's throne and let me reign in his stead.' "'Ah, well, then,' said the old woman, still with the same cracked voice, "'if that is all your business, you need not be in a very great hurry. Just take me on your back, there's a good youth.' and carry me across the river. I and my peacock have something to do on the other side, as well as yourself. Good mother, replied Jason, your business can hardly be so important as the pulling down a king from his throne. Besides, as you may see for yourself, the river is very boisterous, and if I should chance to stumble, it would sweep both of us away more easily than it has carried off yonder uprooted tree. I would gladly help you if I could, but I doubt whether I am strong enough to carry you across. "'Then,' said she, very scornfully, "'neither are you strong enough to pull King Peleus off his throne. And, Jason, unless you will help an old woman at her need, you ought not to be a king. What are kings made for, save to succour the feeble and stressed? But do as you please. 
either take me on your back or with my poor old limbs i shall try my best to struggle across the stream saying this the old woman poked with her staff in the river as if to find the safest place in its rocky bed where she might make the first step but jason by this time had grown ashamed of his reluctance to help her he felt that he could never forgive himself if this poor feeble creature should come to any harm in attempting to wrestle against the headlong current the good chiron whether half horse or no had taught him that the noblest use of his strength was to assist the weak and also that he must treat every young woman as if she were his sister and every old one like a mother remembering these maxims the vigorous and beautiful young man knelt down and requested the good dame to mount upon his back the passage seems to me not very safe he remarked but as your business is so urgent i will try to carry you across if the river sweeps you away it shall take me too that no doubt will be a great comfort to both of us quoth the old woman but never fear we shall get safely across so she threw her arms round jason's neck and lifting her from the ground he stepped boldly into the raging and foamy current and began to stagger away from the shore as for the peacock it alighted on the old dame's shoulder jason's two spears one in each hand kept him from stumbling and enabled him to feel his way among the hidden rocks although every instant he expected that his companion and himself would go down the stream together with the driftwood of shattered trees and the carcasses of the sheep and cow down came the cold snowy torrent from the steep side of olympus raging and thundering as if it had a real spite against jason or at all events were determined to snatch off his living burden from his shoulders when he was halfway across the uprooted tree which i have already told you about broke loose from among the rocks and bore down upon him with all its splintered branches sticking out like the hundred arms of the giant briarius it rushed past however without touching him but the next moment his foot was caught in a crevice between two rocks and stuck there so fast that in the effort to get free he lost one of his golden stringed sandals at this accident jason could not help uttering a cry of vexation what is the matter jason asked the old woman matter enough said the young man i have lost a sandal here among the rocks and what sort of a figure shall i cut at the court of king peleus with a golden stringed sandal on one foot and the other foot bare do not take it to heart answered his companion cheerily you never met with better fortune than in losing that sandal it satisfies me that you are the very person whom the speaking oak has been talking about there was no time just then to inquire what the speaking oak had said but the briskness of her tone encouraged the young man and besides he had never in his life felt so vigorous and mighty as since taking this old woman on his back instead of being exhausted he gathered strength as he went on and struggling up against the torrent he at last gained the opposite shore clambered up the bank and set down the old dame and their peacock safely on the grass as soon as this was done however he could not help looking rather despondently at his bare foot with only a remnant of the golden string of the sandal clinging round his ankle you will get a handsomer pair of sandals by and by said the old woman with a kindly look out of her beautiful brown eyes only let king peleus get a glimpse of that bare foot and you shall see him turn as pale as ashes i promise you there is your path go along my good jason and my blessing go with you and when you sit on your throne remember the old woman whom you helped over the river 
With these words she hobbled away, giving him a smile over her shoulder as she departed. Whether the light of her beautiful brown eyes threw a glory round about her, or whatever the cause might be, Jason fancied that there was something very noble and majestic in her figure after all, and that, though her gait seemed to be a rheumatic hobble, yet she moved with as much grace and dignity as any queen on earth. Her peacock, which had now fluttered down from her shoulder, strutted behind her in prodigious pomp, and spread out its magnificent tail on purpose for Jason to admire it. When the old dame and her peacock were out of sight, Jason set forward on his journey. After travelling a pretty long distance, he came to a town situated at the foot of a mountain, and not a great way from the shore of the sea. On the outside of the town there was an immense crowd of people, not only men and women, but children too, all in their best clothes, and evidently enjoying a holiday. The crowd was thickest toward the seashore, and in that direction, over the people's heads, Jason saw a wreath of smoke curling upward to the blue sky. He inquired of one of the multitude what town it was nearby, and why so many persons were here assembled together. "'This is the kingdom of Iolcos,' answered the man, "'and we are the subjects of King Peleus. Our monarch has summoned us together, that we may see him sacrifice a black bull to Neptune, who, they say, is his majesty's father. Yonder is the king, where you see the smoke going up from the altar.' While the man spoke, he eyed Jason great curiosity, for his garb was quite unlike that of the Iolcians, and it looked very odd to see a youth with a leopard skin over his shoulders, and each hand grasping a spear. Jason perceived, too, that the man stared particularly at his feet, one of which, you remember, was bare, while the other was decorated with his father's golden-stringed sandal. "'Look at him! Only look at him!' said the man to his next neighbour. "'Do you see? He wears but one sandal!' Upon this, first one person, and then another, began to stare at Jason, and everybody seemed to be greatly struck with something in his aspect, though they turned their eyes much oftener towards his feet than to any other part of his figure. Besides, he could hear them whispering to one another. "'One sandal! One sandal!' they kept saying. "'The man with one sandal! Here he is at last! Whence has he come? What does he mean to do? What will the king say to the one-sandaled man?' Poor Jason was greatly abashed, and made up his mind that the people of Iolcos were exceedingly ill-bred to take such public notice of an accidental deficiency in his dress. Meanwhile, whether it were that they hustled him forward, or that Jason of his own accord thrust a passage through the crowd, it so happened that he soon found himself close to the smoking altar, where King Peleus was sacrificing the black bull. The murmur and hum of the multitude, in their surprise at the spectacle of Jason, with his one bare foot, grew so loud that it disturbed the ceremonies, and the king, holding the great knife with which he was just going to cut the bull's throat, turned angrily about and fixed his eyes on Jason. The people had now withdrawn from around him, so that the youth stood in an open space near the smoking altar, front to front with the angry king Peleus. "'Who are you?' cried the king, with a terrible frown. "'And how dare you make this disturbance?' while I am sacrificing a black bull to my father Neptune. "'It is no fault of mine,' answered Jason. "'Your Majesty must blame the rudeness of your subjects, who have raised all this tumult, because one of my feet happens to be bare.' When Jason said this, the king gave a quick, startled glance at his feet. "'Ha!' muttered he. "'Here is the one-sandled fellow, sure enough. What can I do with him?' And he clutched more closely the great knife in his hand, as if he were half a mind to slay Jason instead of the black bull. 
the people round about caught up the king's words, indistinctly as they were uttered, and first there was a murmur among them, and then a loud shout. The one settled man has come! The prophecy must be fulfilled! For you are to know that many years before King Peleus had been told by the speaking oak of Dodona that a man with one sandal should cast him down from his throne. On this account he had given strict orders that nobody should ever come into his presence unless both sandals were securely tied upon his feet, and he kept an officer in his palace whose sole business it was to examine people's sandals and to supply them with a new pair at the expense of the royal treasury as soon as the old ones began to wear out. In the whole course of the king's reign he had never been thrown into such a fright and agitation as by the spectacle of poor Jason's bare foot. But as he was naturally a bold and hard-hearted man, he soon took courage and began to consider in what way he might rid himself of this terrible one-sandled stranger. "'My good young man,' said King Peleus, taking the softest tone imaginable in order to throw Jason off his guard, "'you are excessively welcome to my kingdom.' Judging by your dress, you must have travelled a long distance, for it is not the fashion to wear leopard skins in this part of the world. Pray, what may I call your name, and where did you receive your education? My name is Jason, answered the young stranger. Ever since my infancy I have dwelled in the cave of Chiron the Centaur. He was my instructor, and taught me music and horsemanship, and how to cure wounds, and likewise how to inflict wounds with my weapons. I have heard of Chiron the schoolmaster, replied King Peleus, and how that there is an immense deal of learning and wisdom in his head, although it happens to be set on a horse's body. It gives me great delight to see one of his scholars at my court. But to test how much you have profited under so excellent a teacher, will you allow me to ask you a single question? I do not pretend to be very wise, said Jason, but ask me what you please, and I will answer to the best of my ability. Now King Peleus meant cunningly to entrap the young man, and to make him say something that should be the cause of mischief and destruction to himself. So, with a crafty and evil smile upon his face, he spoke as follows. "'What would you do, brave Jason?' asked he. "'If there were a man in the world by whom, as you had reason to believe, you were doomed to be ruined and slain, what would you do, I say, if that man stood before you and in your power?' When Jason saw the malice and wickedness which King Peleus could not prevent from gleaming out of his eyes, he probably guessed that the king had discovered what he came for, and that he intended to turn his own words against himself. Still, he scorned to tell a falsehood. Like an upright and honourable prince, as he was, he determined to speak out the real truth. Since the king had chosen to ask him the question, and since Jason had promised him an answer, there was no right way save to tell him precisely what would be the most prudent thing to do if he had his worst enemy in his power. Therefore, after a moment's consideration, he spoke up with a firm and manly voice. "'I would send such a man,' said he, "'in quest of the Golden Fleece.' This enterprise, you will understand, was, of all others, the most difficult and dangerous in the world. In the first place, it would be necessary to make a long voyage through unknown seas." There was hardly a hope or a possibility that any young man who should undertake this voyage would either succeed in obtaining the golden fleece, or would survive to return home and tell of the perils he had run. The eyes of King Peleus sparkled with joy, therefore, when he heard Jason's reply. "'Well said, wise man with the one sandal,' cried he. "'Go, then, and at the peril of your life bring me back the golden fleece.' 
"'I go,' answered Jason composedly. "'If I fail, you need not fear that I will ever come back to trouble you again. But if I return to Iolcos with the prize, then, King Peleus, you must hasten down from your lofty throne and give me your crown and scepter.' "'That I will,' said the king, with a sneer. "'Meantime, I will keep them very safely for you.' The first thing that Jason thought of doing, after he left the king's presence, was to go to Dodona, and inquire of the talking oak what course it was best to pursue. This wonderful tree stood in the centre of an ancient wood. Its stately trunk rose up a hundred feet into the air, and threw a broad and dense shadow over more than an acre of ground. Standing beneath it, Jason looked up among the knotted branches and green leaves, and into the mysterious heart of the old tree, and spoke aloud as if he were addressing some person who was hidden in the depths of the foliage. "'What shall I do?' said he, "'in order to win the golden fleece.' At first there was a deep silence, not only within the shadow of the talking oak, but all through the solitary wood. In a moment or two, however, the leaves of the oak began to stir and rustle as if a gentle breeze were wandering among them, although the other trees of the wood were perfectly still. The sound grew louder and became like the roar of a high wind. By and by, Jason imagined that he could distinguish words, but very confusedly, because each separate leaf of the tree seemed to be a tongue, and the whole myriad of tongues were babbling at once. But the noise waxed broader and deeper, until it resembled a tornado sweeping through the oak, and making one great utterance out of the thousand and thousand of little murmurs which each leafy tongue had caused by its rustling, and now, though it still had the tone of a mighty wind roaring among the branches, it was also like a deep bass voice speaking, as distinctly as a tree could be expected to speak, the following words, "'Go to Argus, the shipbuilder, and bid him build a galley with fifty oars.' Then the voice melted again into the indistinct murmur of the rustling leaves, and died gradually away. When it was quite gone, Jason felt inclined to doubt whether he had actually heard the words, or whether his fancy had not shaped them out of the ordinary sound made by a breeze while passing through the thick foliage of the tree. But on inquiry among the people of Iolcos, he found that there was really a man in the city by the name of Argus, who was a very skilful builder of vessels. This showed some intelligence in the oak, else how should it have known that any such person existed? At Jason's request, Argus readily consented to build him a galley so big that it should require fifty strong men to row it, although no vessel of such a size and burden had heretofore been seen in the world. So the head carpenter and all his journeymen and apprentices began their work, and for a good while afterward there they were, busily employed hewing out the timbers and making a great clatter with their hammers, until the new ship, which was called the Argo, seemed to be quite ready for sea. And as the talking oak had already given him such good advice, Jason thought that it would not be amiss to ask for a little more. He visited it again, therefore, and standing beside its huge, rough trunk, inquired what he should do next. This time there was no such universal quivering of the leaves throughout the whole tree as there had been before. But after a while Jason observed that the foliage of a great branch, which stretched above his head, had begun to rustle as if the wind were stirring that one bough, while all the other boughs of the oak were at rest. "'Cut me off,' said the branch, as soon as it could speak distinctly. "'Cut me off! Cut me off! 
and carve me into a figurehead for your galley. Accordingly, Jason took the branch at its word and lopped it off the tree. A carver in the neighborhood engaged to make the figurehead. He was a tolerably good workman and had already carved several figureheads in what he intended for feminine shapes, and looking pretty much like those which we see nowadays stuck up under a vessel's bowsprit with great staring eyes that never wink at the dash of the spray. But, what was very strange, the carver found that his hand was guided by some unseen power and by a skill beyond his own, and that his tools shaped out an image which he had never dreamt of. When the work was finished, it turned out to be the figure of a beautiful woman, with a helmet on her head, from beneath which the long ringlets fell down upon her shoulders. On the left arm was a shield, and in its centre appeared a lifelike representation of the head of Medusa, with a snaky locks. The right arm was extended as if pointed onward. The face of this wonderful statue, though not angry or forbidding, was so grave and majestic that perhaps you might call it severe, and as for the mouth, it seemed just ready to unclose its lips and utter words of the deepest wisdom. Jason was delighted with the oaken image, and gave the carver no rest until it was completed and set up where a figurehead has always stood, from that time to this, in the vessel's prow. "'And now,' cried he, as he stood gazing at the calm, majestic face of the statue, "'I must go to the talking oak and inquire what next to do.' "'There is no need of that, Jason,' said a voice which, though it was far lower, reminded him of the mighty tones of the great oak. "'When you desire good advice, you can seek it of me.' Jason had been looking straight into the face of the image when these words were spoken but he could hardly believe either his ears or his eyes. The truth was, however, that the oaken lips had moved, and to all appearance the voice had proceeded from the statue's mouth. Recovering a little from his surprise, Jason bethought himself that the image had been carved out of the wood of the talking oak, and that, therefore, it was really no great wonder, but, on the contrary, the most natural thing in the world, that it should possess the faculty of speech. It should have been very odd indeed if it had not, but certainly it was a great piece of good fortune that he should be able to carry so wise a block of wood along with him in his perilous voyage. "'Tell me, wondrous image,' exclaimed Jason, "'since you inherit the wisdom of the speaking oak of Dodona, whose daughter you are, tell me, where shall I find fifty bold youths who will take each of them an oar of my galley? They must have sturdy arms to row, and brave hearts to encounter perils, or we shall never win the golden fleece.' "'Go,' replied the oaken image, "'go, summon all the heroes of Greece.' And, in fact, considering what a great deed was to be done, could any advice be wiser than this which Jason received from the figurehead of his vessel? He lost no time in sending messengers to all the cities, and making known to the whole people of Greece that Prince Jason, the son of King Eson, was going in quest of the fleece of gold, and he desired the help of forty-nine of the bravest and strongest young men alive to row his vessel and share his dangers, and Jason himself would be the fiftieth. At this news the adventurous youths all over the country began to bestir themselves. Some of them had already fought with giants and slain dragons, and the younger ones, who had not yet met with such good fortune, thought it a shame to have lived so long without getting astride of a flying serpent or sticking their spears into a chimera, or at least thrusting their right arms down a monstrous lion's throat. 
there was a fair prospect that they would meet with plenty of such adventures before finding the golden fleece as soon as they could furbish up their helmets and shields therefore and gird on their trusty swords they came thronging to iolcos and clambered on board the new galley shaking hands with jason they assured him that they did not care a pin for their lives but would help row the vessel to the remotest edge of the world and as much further as he think it best to go many of these brave fellows had been educated by chiron the four-footed pedagogue and were therefore old schoolmates of jason and knew him to be a lad of spirit the mighty hercules whose shoulders afterward held up the sky was one of them and there were castor and pollux the twin brothers who were never accused of being chicken-hearted although they had been hatched out of an egg and theseus who was so renowned for killing the minotaur and lynceus with his wonderfully sharp eyes which could see through a millstone or look right down into the depths of the earth and discover the treasures that were there and orpheus the very best of harpers who sang and played upon his lyre so sweetly that the brute beasts stood upon their hind legs and capered merrily to the music yes and at some of his more moving tunes the rocks bestirred their moss-grown bulk out of the ground and a grove of forest trees uprooted themselves and nodding their tops to one another performed a country dance one of the rowers was a beautiful young woman named atalanta who had been nursed among the mountains by a bear so light of foot was this fair damsel that she could step from one foamy crest of a wave to the foamy crest of another without wetting more than the sole of her sandal she had grown up in a very wild way and talked much about the rights of women and loved hunting and war far better than her needle but in my opinion the most remarkable of this famous company were two sons of the north wind airy youngsters and of rather a blustering disposition who had wings on their shoulders and in case of a calm could puff out their cheeks and blow almost as fresh a breeze as their father i ought not to forget the prophets and conjurers of whom there were several in the crew and who could foretell what would happen to-morrow or the next day or a hundred years hence but were generally quite unconscious of what was passing at the moment jason appointed typhus to be helmsman because he was a star-gazer and knew the points of the compass lynceus on account of his sharp sight was stationed as a lookout in the prow where he saw a whole day's sail ahead but was rather apt to overlook things that lay directly under his nose if the sea only happened to be deep enough however lynceus could tell you exactly what kind of rocks or sands were at the bottom of it and he often cried out to his companions that they were sailing over heaps of sunken treasure which yet he was none the richer for beholding to confess the truth few people believed him when he said it well but when the argonauts as these fifty brave adventurers were called had prepared everything for the voyage an unforeseen difficulty threatened to end it before it was begun the vessel you must understand was so long and broad and ponderous that the united force of all the fifty was insufficient to shove her into the water hercules i suppose had not grown to his full strength else he might have set her afloat as easily as a little boy launches his boat upon a puddle but here were these fifty heroes pushing and straining and growing red in the face without making the argos start an inch at last quite wearied out they set themselves down on the shore exceedingly disconsolate and thinking that the vessel must be left to rot and fall in pieces and that they must either swim across the sea or lose the golden fleece all at once jason bethought himself of the galley's miraculous figurehead o oh, daughter of the talking oak cried he how shall we set to work to get our vessel into the water seat yourselves 
answered the image, for it had known what had ought to be done from the very first, and was only waiting for the question to be put. Seat yourselves and handle your oars, and let Orpheus play upon his harp. Immediately the fifty heroes got on board, and seizing their oars, held them perpendicularly in the air, while Orpheus, who liked such task far better than rowing, swept his fingers across the harp. At the first ringing note of the music they felt the vessel stir. Orpheus thrummed away briskly, and the galley slid at once into the sea, dipping her prow so deeply that the figurehead drank the wave with its marvellous lips, and rising again as buoyant as a swan. The rowers plied their fifty oars, the white foam boiled up before the prow, the water gurgled and bubbled in their wake, while Orpheus continued to play so lively a strain of music that the vessel seemed to dance over the billows by way of keeping time to it. Thus triumphantly did the Argo sail out of the harbour amid the huzzas and good wishes of everybody except the wicked old Peleus, who stood on a promontory scowling at her, and wishing that he could blow out of his lungs the tempest of wrath that was in his heart, and so sink the galley with all on board. When they had sailed above fifty miles over the sea, Lynceus happened to cast his sharp eyes behind, and said that there was this bad-hearted king, still perched upon the promontory, and scowling so gloomily that it looked like a black thundercloud in that quarter of the horizon. In order to make the time pass away more pleasantly during the voyage, the heroes talked about the Golden Fleece. It originally belonged, it appears, to a Boeotian ram, who had taken on his back two children, when in danger of their lives, and fled with them over land and sea as far as Colchis. One of the children, whose name was Helly, fell into the sea and was drowned. But the other, a little boy named Phrixus, was brought safe ashore by the faithful ram, who, however, was so exhausted that he immediately lay down and died. In memory of this good deed, and as a token of his true heart, the fleece of the poor dead ram was miraculously changed to gold, and became one of the most beautiful objects ever seen on earth. It was hung upon a tree in a sacred grove, where it had now been kept I know not how many years, and was the envy of mighty kings, who had nothing so magnificent in any of their palaces. End of chapter 7, part 1